From CPRI and the CPRI Knowledge Hub, this is Research Minutes, a weekly look at new and important research in education. Today, in partnership with Phi Delta Kappa Magazine, we look at structural racism and how common policies and perceptions relating to urban communities can significantly alter the lives of American students. Urban increasingly refers to, uh, is used as kind of an adjective. We talk about urban youth. And we know that that often refers to children of color who are low income, not just kids who live in the city. We welcome renowned education policy expert and Dean of USC's Rossier School of Education, Pedro Nagera. Nagera joins CPRI Executive Director Jonathan Sapavis to discuss his new Kaplan article, The Persistence of Structural Racism, and the ways in which communities have attempted to push back. Structural racism can seem so formidable because it's so rooted in our economy, it's rooted in uh, our history, that it can seem like nothing can be done. And we've shown that when communities are organized, they can resist changes that are directed by local officials, but they can also counter some of the most pernicious effects. Nagero also discusses ways that school leaders, teacher education programs, and even students themselves can work to enact change in the wake of this year's widespread protests for racial justice. We don't have to simply accept these inequities as, as being the way it is. That we can, in fact, even young people, teachers as well, can organize to draw attention to what's happening and to bring about some change in ways that really do make a difference. That's right now on Research Minutes. Welcome to Research Minutes. I'm Jonathan Sapovitz, Executive Director of the Consortium for Policy Research and Education, headquartered at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education. Today, we're really happy to welcome Pedro Nogueira, a renowned expert in education research and policy, who this summer began his role as the Dean of the Rossier School of Education at USC. Thanks so much for joining us, Pedro. Great to be with you, John. Thank you. So today, we're discussing your new article in Phi Delta Kappen Magazine co-authored with Julio Alicia, titled Structural Racism and the Urban Geography of Education. It offers a detailed and incredibly timely breakdown of how issues like housing policy, gentrification, and school closures, and even environmental disasters impact communities of color and the students who live in them. To start, could you give us a primer on what structural racism is and how it differs from other race components you contrast it with, like interpersonal racism and racial bias? Certainly, and um, great to be with you, John. So the, the, the police killings uh, this summer of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor drew attention to the reality of racism in America. But what we try to point out in the article is that far more people uh, are affected by and, and actually even die or have their lives cut short by structural racism. And you might think of structural racism as really being embedded in the history of this country, embedded in the way our economy operates. It results in lower life expectancies amongst uh, African-Americans, Native Americans. It results in higher rates of diabetes and heart disease. Uh, it's the reason why Flint and many black communities uh, across the country suffer from more lead in the water because it's, it's, it's a manifestation of the ways in which racial inequality is perpetuated across time in America and shows up in many different forms. So 
Is it possible to recognize structural racism when it's initiated or only in retrospect? Uh, it's, it, you, can, you can measure uh, through things like the disparities in, in life expectancy and infant mortality, uh, but you can also actually see it. Almost every major American city and many small cities have what we euphemistically call ghettos, black communities that are usually very poor, uh, characterized by a lack of uh, grocery stores and banks. And we just kind of accept that as just the way it is in America, part of the social landscape. But actually, ghettos were produced through racial discrimination, housing discrimination, through deliberate policies which put black residents in the worst neighborhoods. Um, in a place uh, in Dallas, there's literally a neighborhood that's built in a swamp uh, where there are no grocery stores and where people have to rely on local uh, liquor store for most of their food. This is a very common pattern across the country that we often take uh, for granted, just being the way it is in America, but you can trace the, our history to understand how these communities were produced. So related to your description of ghettos, um, you write that the word urban, as it's used today, no longer simply refers to a physical location. What are you referring to when you say urban area now, and how have these areas changed in recent years? So we used to think of urban as a, a, a kind of a physical geographic concept. I live in Los Angeles. I live in an area called Culver City. But if you were to visit uh, my neighborhood, you would say, well, this seems more like a suburban community. People have houses with yards. There are parks. Uh, not far from us are, you know, oil rigs. We're actually one of the few cities in the country with oil rigs. But it doesn't feel urban in the way uh, New York City, where I grew up, uh, feels. Uh, we don't have tall buildings. So urban increasingly refers to, uh, is used as kind of an adjective. We talk about urban youth. Uh, and we know you've, uh, that, that that often refers to children of color who are low income, not just kids who live in the city. And so when we think about urban, we're not thinking about the metropolitan area per se. We're thinking about areas within cities um, that are usually comprised of uh, low income people of color. So it's really an expanded notion of this term. In your Kappen article, you give some recent examples of structural racism at work in American cities and uh, its impact on students. And you have three very vivid stories. You begin with the case of Chicago and the raft of school closures that began in 2004. And you connect the closures to shifts in housing policy and you, you go so far as to call it a manufactured crisis. Can you describe what happened and what students' experiences were as a result? Yeah, I think those of you who know Chicago know that for many years, Chicago had some of the largest housing uh, complexes in the country. And, um, you know, in the minds of, of some, these were uh, a source of many of the problems facing the city. The very existence of those projects, not the fact that many people didn't have work and other opportunities. Uh, and so what we saw starting in the 1990s is a gradual destruction of those projects, displacement of the residents, and then a closure of the schools in those communities. And one way to significantly reduce the population of poor people, poor people of color, is to get rid of their schools. And so that occurred primarily in poor black communities. And not only were schools closed, uh, usually by an act of the city, um, they were also uh, targeted in these black communities. So you can look at which areas experience the greatest number of closures, and you'll see 
that this happened in the black community, often the justification being that these were failing schools. Hmm. So in contrast to Chicago, which had to do with housing policies, which had a, an implication on the school system, another example that you use is New Orleans. And when the city was hit with Hurricane Katrina, and that certainly wasn't a manufactured crisis, but it was a natural event. But, but that also produced a cataclysm of different implications for the school system which you actually call disaster capitalism. Um, can you talk about how this structural racism played out in the case of New Orleans? In the case of New Orleans, as you pointed out, Katrina hit everybody, but certain communities were more impacted. When the levees broke, and most people say it wasn't actually Katrina that destroyed New Orleans, it was the levees breaking, it impacted the Lower Ninth Ward in particular. That was uh, the section uh, of New Orleans where the, the low-income black residents lived. That was where most of the displacement, uh, many of the residents moved to places like Houston and Atlanta to, because they couldn't, could no longer live in New Orleans. Uh, what's ironic is within a year, the uh, Superdome uh, was not only back up and running, even though it had housed uh, many of the, uh, the people who had been displaced, uh, the Saints were in the Super Bowl and New Orleans was back. But... Many of the residents of the Lower Ninth Ward never came back. In fact, it took over 10 years before schools were rebuilt there. This process, the fact of that, that it had this kind of an impact on this community is what many people now refer to as a kind of disaster capitalism. That is that the, the impact was not uniform. It, it, it particularly in, uh, affected low-income black residents. Former Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan at one point even said Katrina was the best thing that ever happened to schools in New Orleans. He, he apologized for it later because of the callous nature of the remark. But it was a, a way in which the whole scale destruction of schools and mass firing of black teachers uh, was justified in the wake of Katrina. As I read the Kappen article and I um, read the stories of Chicago and New Orleans, and um, you also talk about some of your own work in Los Angeles, I couldn't help thinking about schools as both a manifestation of the phenomenon that you're talking about and also as a source of the beginning of a solution. So how do you see education's role in confronting structural racism? Well, I think that structural racism can seem so formidable because it's so uh, rooted in our economy, it's rooted in uh, our history, as I said, that it can seem like nothing could be done. But uh, what we try to do is in the articles to show that there are activists in the community uh, who are very much aware of uh, these problems and who have organized to try to address them, organize to address the ways in which uh, schools have been closed in Los Angeles, the uh, lack of access to educational opportunities, particularly in communities like South Central Los Angeles. And what these examples remind us or demonstrate is that uh, through collective organizing, it is possible to not only draw attention to these issues, but actually to bring about change. And, and we've shown that when communities are organized, they can resist uh, changes that are directed by local officials, but they can also counter some of the most pernicious effects. These are examples of how local activism can counteract some of the potential pernicious effects 
of structural racism. Do you see any promise in those with with more formal power, i.e. policymakers in education, as being able to anticipate and embed some ameliorating effects inside of policy? Well, you know, it's ironic because if there were visionary local leaders, I think we'd see more of that. Uh, so think about uh, Olmsted, the architect who way back in the 19th century understood that parks were necessary to bring people together because they actually uh, reduce uh, some of the class tensions and, and, and conflict. And so parks like Central Park in New York City were uh, produced as a result. So there was a time when uh, you had civic leaders, uh, Henry Ford, uh, in Detroit, understood that his workers needed affordable housing not far from uh, the Ford plant. And so housing was built. So there were moments in America's history where we recognized the need to think about the needs of working people, low-income people, as a part of the city. And I think increasingly that's not been the case. Uh, when I was back in New York during the Bloomberg administration, it was becoming clear that the lowest-income people increasingly had the longest commutes because they could no longer live in the city. So you literally had people commuting from Pennsylvania to low-income jobs in New York. It's clear New York cannot run without low-income workers who are the nannies, who are the, the cab drivers, who are the custodians, the people who make the city work, can't afford to live so far away. But we lack leadership at the local level that's thinking about these connections and thinking about the need not only for racial diversity, but for socioeconomic diversity in order for cities to work well. Those are really insightful examples of um, Olmsted and of the design of New York and of Michigan in um, the Henry Ford era. I'm, I'm curious about, you know, policy is made not just by the designers of the policy of them, policies themselves, but also by the people who are the local implementers. And so, you know, we can think of not just state leaders, but district leaders and school leaders and teachers and even students as policymakers. And so how can those who are implementing policies recognize and counteract some of the forces that you've surfaced? Well, you know, I, I, there's a great book I would recommend. It's called An Amazing Thing Happened Along the Way by I'm blanking on his name, Charlie Schwartz. He, I think he's a professor at the University of Illinois. And he documents, he was a teacher in Chicago uh, several years ago, and he was uh, getting his students to document conditions in their schools. And the kids were coming back saying they have rodents in their schools, broken windows, water fountains that don't work. And he saw it merely as an academic exercise. And the kids said, we need to tell uh, the school board about what's happening in our school. And so together with his students, they raised the issues to their local board. And before you know it, it became a major embarrassment to the school board and to the city. And the kids continued. And they got more media attention for their organizing and ultimately were able to draw attention to the conditions. And that led to some improvement in their facilities. It's an important example because it's a reminder that we don't have to simply accept these inequities as, as being the way it is. That we can, in fact, uh, even young people, teachers as well, can organize to draw attention to what's happening and to bring about some change in ways that really do make a difference. That's just such a wonderful example of, of how teachers can 
play a role in helping helping the next generation of of our citizens to really be much more aware of these forces that are operating. Um, you know, both of our universities play important roles in developing and supporting both new teachers and ongoing teachers. What are some ways that teacher preparation programs or in-service programs might incorporate awareness of structural racism and efforts for activism inside of their curricula? Well, you know, there are a number of universities now that are developing residency-based programs. Um, And the idea behind that is that you want to prepare teachers in the schools where they'll work, provide, bring our faculty to those schools to support, mentor them uh, during student teaching. This is a great opportunity to give those faculty and students a chance to learn about the communities where they'll work so that they see themselves as part of the community rather than uh, kind of aliens coming in from outside who return home um, because they feel unsafe. Uh, I saw this happening at Ball State University. It's a great uh, initiative. They're called Schools in Partnership with Community. And they take first-year teachers to, uh, students in the teacher ed program, and they bring them into areas just outside of uh, Muncie, Indiana, in the local community. And they have community residents who serve as mentors to the student teachers. And they learn about community programs and after-school programs. And it's such a great way to give, uh, to bring about a different kind of relationship. Most of the student teachers that I met when I was visiting were white. Most of the residents were black. And I asked the student teachers, um, what is it like to work in a community that's so different from where you grew up? And uh, several of them said, honestly, I don't know how I could be a teacher without this kind of experience. Because I grew up in rural Indiana. I know nothing about growing, uh, working in an urban, uh, black urban area. And without this kind of relationship, I would not have been able to even approach teaching in these communities. And the relationships they formed were not only strong, but authentic. And so I think there's a lot we can do to bring that about as a part of the teacher education program. So that suggestion about um, embedding a better understanding of, of the context within which teachers are teaching and Trying to, I guess, what you're suggesting is to break down the distinction between the, you know, what we would traditionally think of as the role of educators and connecting it with the um, lives and experiences of students. Absolutely. It's, it's so important. Uh, University of Miami started doing something very similar with their medical students a few years ago, where they had them in the first year going out into parts of Miami to understand the culture of those communities, you know, what people eat, how they live, because they understand culture is a reflect, also impacts health outcomes. And if you don't understand what's happening in the lives of the people you serve, you're going to have trouble figuring out how to best serve them. And I think the same is true in education. I was just going to say that the role of education is so central, but so intertwined with so many of the phenomena that you talk about. And that's one of the really eye-opening things that I got from reading your Fidelta Kappen article is how embedded both the education system and these forces are in the fabric of society. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, we, you, when you really see this in rural areas where schools are the hub of a community, you know, in, in many parts of the country, you know, Friday night football is the only thing happening in town and the whole town comes out, even if they don't have kids playing, um, because the school brings people together. Well, that's true in many urban areas as well. When the school sees itself as an asset of the community, when 
the staff at that school um, uh, works with the community, uh, they actually benefit from partnership because the, the community will take care of the school and vice versa. And so, I, I, you know, I think it's important that we encourage those kinds of relationships uh, because we know that children coming to and from school need safe passage. We need residents looking out for children and we need schools to in turn see the community as a source of uh, a support potentially for the school and for the children there. This is really fantastic work, and it's so so eye-opening to um, read and better understand what structural racism is and how it operates. And I really encourage um, our listeners to go read Pedro's full article. Again, it's titled Structural Racism and the Urban Geography of Education, and you can find it now at kappenonline.org or in the November 2020 issue of Phi Delta Kappen. Pedro Nogueira, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jasmine. It's been great to have this conversation. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CIPRI Knowledge Hub. To learn more about today's topic, pick up the November 2020 issue of Cap'n Magazine, titled What is a Good School? Now available in print and online at cap'nonline.org. For more episodes of this podcast, you can find us at researchminutes.org. And to share thoughts on today's episode, you can find us on Twitter at CPreHub. That's C-P-R-E-Hub.